name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You may be seated. Thank you, Luke. Wonderful song. Glad that you're here. As we said in the opening, this is New Members, New Christians Day here at Oldham Lane. We had a class this morning kind of giving a rundown, a, a Oldham Lane 101 class, I guess you could say, for our new members, new Christians. And also, after the service this morning, we'll have, a, we'll have a lunch together, and hopefully you'll stay for that. If you're visiting with us, we're involved in a study called One Word. And there are devotional books that we have asked our, our members to buy or to pick up, and uh, each week we are going through a word for the week. And there is a devotional based around that word for every day, Monday through Friday, and then it all culminates on Sunday with me focusing on that word in the sermon. And as you can see, the word for this Sunday is wrath. Maybe not the most pleasant word to focus on, but one that we absolutely have to understand in relation to God and His character. You know, I've often been asked to do funerals for individuals that I did not know and that were not Christians. What happens more often than you would think is someone passes away, they didn't have a church home, they didn't go to church, their family didn't go to church, so they don't have a preacher to call, but they want a quote-unquote church funeral. And so the funeral home will call me and say, would you be willing to do this? I've got to admit, it's very hard. But I usually oblige because it gives me an opportunity to reach out to a family that otherwise may not have been reached. But in sitting down and talking with the family, oftentimes what I find out is not only did they not go to church, they weren't very spiritual, and sometimes, unfortunately, they just weren't a very good person. And so it's hard to come up with the right words to say at a funeral like that, especially when you're like me and don't believe in preaching someone into heaven. Now, I don't believe in preaching someone into hell either, but I can't in good conscience stand up there and say that this person is in heaven when I know that they did everything on earth to live outside of Christ. But have you noticed, if you've been to very many funerals, how just about everyone is in heaven? I mean, you go to a funeral, and they're sitting there talking about the deceased, and you're sitting there going, is that the same guy? Because I, I don't think that that's the same guy I knew, right? All of a sudden, all the things that they did that were negatives in life now become positives. All of a sudden, all those things that they did as they lived outside of Christ, outside of the realm of God, now those things are considered to be admirable, honorable. Have you ever noticed that? You sit there at a funeral and maybe a family member of the preacher says, hey, you know, I, I know so-and-so is up there having a beer with Jesus right now. <laughs> or I'm sure they're up there stirring up trouble in heaven right now. And it doesn't matter how they lived on earth, everyone seems to wind up in heaven. And I get it. it. It's not our place to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That's above my pay grade. I know it is yours as well. I understand all that. Who am I to judge, right? I understand all that. But at the end of the day, the Bible makes clear who's going to be in heaven. And at the end of the day, the Bible also makes it clear that not everybody's going to heaven. Now, I'm not exactly happy about that fact. But it is a fact. And for some, 
that fact is offensive. Even though the Holy, Spirit, Holy Spirit-inspired words of God say it, even some Christians, even some preachers find that this is offensive. Why? Well, I think one reason is because in our world, we have idolized God's love to the neglect or denial of his other attributes. You probably noticed that nowadays the Christian message is all about the feel-good uh, love and kindness and grace and mercy of God. God loves you. You're special. Your artwork is hanging on his refrigerator. If he had a wallet, your picture would be in it. We can go on and on, right? And that's true. God does love you. I mean, he sent his son to die for you. I mean, if you have any doubt whether he loves you or not, just look to the cross, right? But whether you like it or not, there is a side of God, perhaps we could call it that, that is wrathful, that is just. And we can't focus on God's love at the exclusion of his wrath. Doing so avoids the bad news, and therefore it makes the good news optional, if you want to put it that way. I think another reason why we focus so intently on maybe the love of God and not the wrath of God is that many have a diminished view of God's holiness. And we've talked about this in previous lessons. If you don't understand the holiness of God, you don't understand God at all. A holy God cannot tolerate sin. Everything that is against a holy God must be purged from him. So wickedness, evil, sin has to be eliminated because a holy God cannot tolerate sin. And of course, we ask ourselves, well, then how could a holy God love anybody? Well, now we move into the gospel, right? But if we, if we don't understand the holiness of God, we're never going to understand the wrath of God. We're never going to understand the justice of God. When we lose a sense of God's holiness, then his judgments just seem arbitrary. And here's something else. I think many folks have had their preaching, or excuse me, their thinking shaped by a preacher or a teacher who feared man more than he did God. And that's unfortunate. And I hope that I never fall into that category. But all too often, church is treated like a business now. And so success is measured by certain metrics. And the goal of church is to bring as many customers through the door as possible. And we want them to be happy and we want them to contribute money because that's what a good business does. It makes money. And it has happy customers. And so we, we base our church, our worship, all of that on satisfying the consumer. And when you base everything you do in church on satisfying the consumer, well, guess what? You're not going to talk much about sin. You're not going to talk much about the wrath of God. You're not going to talk much about hell. Those are doctrines that are going to get excluded from your teaching and preaching. When we allow the people to define ministry success, then we naturally get away from the harder teachings of the Bible. And many religious folks have been greatly influenced by a pragmatic approach to ministry. I want you to notice something that's found in Romans chapter 1. Beginning in verse 16, here's what we read. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, But the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. The gospel is good news and bad news. Did you notice that there? It's good news and bad news. For by it, or for in it, Paul writes. What is it? Well, it's the gospel, right? For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And then Paul continues with these words. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The gospel teaches us what reveals the wrath of God. And what reveals the wrath of God is this. Unrighteousness, ungodliness, and those who suppress the truth. That reveals the wrath of God. We always think of the gospel as the good news of Jesus Christ, and certainly that is true. But before it's good news, it's bad news, right? Because you must be confronted, but as a sinner outside of Christ, you have to be confronted with the bad news first. And the bad news is, you are living in rebellion against God. The good news is, of course, you don't have to. Look now at Romans chapter 2, beginning of verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and re revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there's wrath and indignation. Do you realize that the Bible speaks more about wrath than it does love? You know that? Now, I don't think that that means that, that God's love is overshadowed by his wrath. I don't think it was the Holy Spirit's intent to exclude God's love at the expense of his wrath. But it is a fact that God's wrath is spoken about more than love, which means that we cannot ignore it. We cannot gloss over this. We cannot pretend like it's not there. The good news is that a sinner can be justified. The bad news is that, unfortunately, some will stubbornly refuse to receive this free gift of grace. They may not be struck dead immediately, but there will come a day. A day when they will receive their just punishment. God will avenge all unrighteousness. Romans 1 and 2 is the good, the bad, and the ugly. At least... That's how we would probably view it today. You have the good news, which is the gospel, right? The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Then you have the bad news, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then you have the ugly, that because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. So you have the good, the bad, and the ugly. But I'm here to tell you this morning, folks, understand this. It's all good. It's all good. We may look at it as the good, the bad, and the ugly, but at the end of the day, it is all good. You want a God who is wrathful. I promise you. Because to exclude the wrath of God, to have a God that is not wrathful, is going to bring about other consequences in your life because we're not focusing on a holy God as we talked about a moment ago. We all want a God who is just. Trust me on this. 
But before we go any further, before we dig any deeper, we need to ask a question. We need to back up and go to a question that I think might be a little confusing to answer, but it's, it's worth a try. And that is this. Who is God? To ask a question like that begs that you get a little more specific, right? Who is God? How would you describe God? Or maybe we could ask it this way. How would you define yourself? If someone were to ask you, you know, who are you, Beecher McCormick? Who are you, James McCoy? You would probably start by saying, you know, what your name is, who you're married to, uh, where you're from, where you were born, those kind of things, where you work. But that really doesn't tell who you are, right? That really doesn't get to below the surface who you really are. You can say, well, I'm a mom, I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm a wife, I'm a co-worker, I'm an associate, I'm a student, whatever that is. All of those are labels. And many of those labels carry a lot of weight, so I'm not trying to dismiss that. But none of them tell who you really are. Because if you want to know who you really are, you've got to dig beneath the surface, and you've got to look at your character, right? You've got to look at what you do, the choices that you make. And so if we look at God, we're not just looking at surface things. And I bring this up because it is such a problem in the religious world that many people start with man and they reason upward in their view of God. God is a mere magnification of myself. I just start with myself and I think of God just being a little bit bigger than me. And while we were made in the image of God, God is so much unlike us in a lot of ways. He is so much above us, let's put it that way. He alone is worthy to worship. If God is just a little bit above me, or if he's very much like me or James or Eddie, then he's no longer worthy of worship, right? Because we're not worthy of worship. So we have to understand how much above us God is, how holy he is, and understand this as well. God is not a composition. We're a composition. What I mean by that is we were made. We came from somewhere. We are a body and we are a spirit. We are composed. God's not composed. Because if God were composed, if he were a composition, what would that mean? If somebody made him. And nobody made God. He is the self-existent one. God's attributes are God. Okay? God is not just merciful, he is mercy. God is not just loving, he is love. God is not just, he is justice. He is all these things all at once. God is a unitary God. He is not composed of these things because God is not a composition. God is God. Everything that God is and God does harmonizes with everything else that God is and God does. Always, 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 God is God. And all that being said, let me refer you to Psalm 97, verse 2. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Justice and righteousness are indistinguishable from one another in Scripture. To say that God is just is to say that God is equitable. He is a morally equal person, okay? If you look at Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 25, God scolds Israel by saying, Yet ye say, the way of the Lord is not equal. Here now, O house of Israel, is not my way equal, are not your ways unequal. The word inequity and iniquity 
are the same word. Got to be careful how I pronounce those. Inequity and iniquity are the same word. The iniquitous person is not morally equal. He is unequal to himself. The word judgment or justice as used in Psalm 97 and verse 2 is referring to the application of justice to a moral situation, whether favorable or unfavorable. So we could, we could state it like this. If man's ways are equal, then justice favors him. If they are unequal, then God sentences him. Justice is not something God has. It's something that God is, if that makes sense. Sometimes you hear people say, well, justice will not allow God to do such and such. That's not true. God's not controlled by anything. Nothing controls God. God is above everything because God is the creator of all things. Everything flows from God. And so God is not amenable to any law that he, I mean, he created the laws. He is the author of all laws, right? Nothing demands God do anything. God is. All the reasons for God doing anything lie within God. The reasons for doing what he does spring out of who he is. He doesn't, he doesn't act in accordance to some imaginary law. He is the law. He is the author of all laws. We tend to see justice as something external, but with God, he always acts justly. Not out of compulsion from external forces, but because he is just. Not just that he acts justly, he is just. I think many people have formulated this, this picture in their minds of God sitting on his throne in the great courtroom in heaven and people standing before him that are sinners that have lived their whole lives outside of Christ and against God and so they're going to wind up in hell and there is God wrestling with what to do. He's just struggling because his mercy wants to intervene but the justice of God has to do it. Folks, that's a very human way of thinking. God is not composed. All of his attributes work in harmony with one another. God doesn't struggle with being merciful when he really wants to be just and vice versa. His attributes don't quarrel or wrestle with one another. His love doesn't wrestle with his mercy. His love doesn't wrestle with his justice, I should say. They're not at odds with one another. God is God all the time. The just God does not quarrel with the kind God. He does not quarrel with his compassion or his pity because all of his attributes form a unitary God, right? You see, we are all a moral situation. Every one of us. And when God's justice confronts a moral situation, we are either found equal or unequal. We are either find, found innocent or guilty. We are either justified or condemned. And the sentence that we receive will be handed down by a perfect God who never, ever makes a mistake. There's not a single one of us that are going to be able to stand before our Lord on the day of judgment and say, wait, 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 you got the wrong guy. None of us are going to be able to stand before God and say, well, now wait a minute, I, I, I don't think I did that. No, all of us are going to be able to stand before God on the day of judgment without one without one word of criticism towards God and how he handled things. And God does not show partiality. So none of us will be able to stand before our Lord and say, you know, I was a three-time-a-weeker. I should get some preferential treatment here. Do you know what my dad's last name was? Do you, do you, do you know where I come from? Do you know my lineage and my ancestry? You're not going to sneak through the back door because of who you are. 
on the day of judgment, there will be no one who will be able to stand before God and say anything other than, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. That's it. As we bow before His holiness, you will not find a group in heaven or hell that finds fault with the way that God conducts His foreign policy. Instead, all who stand before Him will recognize Him as the righteous judge. When God sentences a man to live with Him for, for eternity, His mercy, His compassion, His wisdom, and all His power all concur. Everything within God agrees. And I realize that's a lot to soak up or to take in just in one sitting. And I hope I didn't lose you about halfway through that. I know that that's more like an academic lecture, but I think we have to understand something about the holiness of God if we're ever going to understand the wrath of God. God is perfect, which means that His justice and His wrath are perfect as well. You know, with us, we get angry, we fly off the handle, we do things that we didn't ever intend to do, but in the heat of the moment, we lose our cool, we have a short fuse or whatever. How many of you as parents have, have said or done something to your children in the heat of the moment to punish them, and you look back on it later and you say, well, I was too harsh, I shouldn't have done that. Or, how many of you as parents dealt with the situation discipline-wise with your children, you look back on it later and go, wow, I, I should have done more, I, I didn't do enough, I wish I'd have handled that differently, right? In our dealings with people, we often find ourselves losing our cool, becoming impatient, we're not long-suffering, our anger, our wrath is imperfect, but not with God. We can't, we can't project the way that we handle things upon a perfect God. Our anger and our wrath is often imperfect, but God has no blemish, no spot nor stain on His character whatsoever. His record is clean. Who He is and what He does is infinitely and boundlessly perfect. Okay, but some of you are sitting here this morning and you're saying, okay, Chris, but there's more, right? And yes, there is. There is beauty in all of this. There is beauty for us beasts, isn't there? And it's called the gospel. The beauty in all of this is that a wrathful God still wants us in heaven. A holy God still wants Chris McCurley in heaven. And that completely blows my mind. The holiness and righteousness of God demands that whatever is wicked be purged from it. God cannot be holy and not be just. He cannot be righteous and not be just. So how can a holy and righteous God have anything to do with sinful man? Look at Proverbs 17 and 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So how can, a, how can a good God justify the wicked and not be an abomination to himself? How can a holy God do that? How can a holy God justify the wicked and not be an abomination to himself? And the answer, of course, is the gospel. You see, a judge is supposed to hand down justice. A judge is supposed to mete out justice. That's his only job. That's what he's supposed to do. And if he doesn't do that, we look at him and say, what an awful judge. He needs to be removed. He's not doing his job. You had one job and you're not doing it. Who wants a corrupt judge? Maybe the criminal. 
But by and large, we want a judge that does their job and meets out justice. What if you'd been the victim of a heinous crime? What if you as a parent lost your child? Your child was kidnapped, beaten, and left for dead. And they catch the perpetrator, and he has his day in court, and you're there. You're there to watch the proceedings, and you're there with a heart full of anger, and you're ready for him to get what's coming to him. And so the verdict is about to be handed down, and this criminal who is obviously guilty stands before the judge, and the judge looks at him and says, I am a merciful and gracious judge, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. You're free to go. What would your reaction be? You would be incensed, right? Your anger and wrath would be at an all-time high. Because not only are you angry with the criminal, you're angry with the judge because he didn't do his job. He didn't do the one thing that he was supposed to do, which is mete out justice. The judge of the universe knows your heart. He knows every deep, dark secret that resides in the nooks and crannies of your soul. He knows it. All of it. And you want him to look at you and say, not guilty? How could a holy God do that? Why would a holy God ever do that? Because of the gospel. Because he loves you that much. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Everything that you deserve, Jesus endured. Every one of you here are responsible for the death of another human being. Everything that you deserve, Jesus endured. So that the righteous judge can look at you and me and say, not guilty. You're free to go. Because his son paid the penalty for our sin. You and I can stand before a holy and righteous God. And rather than being condemned, we are forgiven. Because we find favor in the eyes of God. Not because we're good, but because God is good. You couldn't be good and not be just. And if God is good, then he must be just as well. When God punishes the wicked, it is a just thing to do because it is consistent with man's choice to live outside of Christ. But when God forgives a sinner, it is a just thing to do as well because it is consistent with God's good nature. I love A.W. Tozer. Here's something that he said. He said, The great God Almighty, always one with himself, looks upon a moral situation, and he either sees death or life, and all of God is on the side of death or life. If there is an iniquitous, unequal, unatoned, uncleansed, unprotected sinner in his sin, there's only one answer. All of God says death and hell and all of heaven can't pull that man up. But if he beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and takes the benefits of the infinite agony of God on a cross, God looks on that moral situation and says, life. And all of hell can't drag that man down. You want a wrathful God. Because if God were not wrathful, he would not be just. You know, 
I hope you realize that God doesn't want you to go to hell. The fact that God is wrathful, that he is just, doesn't mean that he is sitting up on his throne in that courtroom of heaven just waiting for you to mess up, counting down the days so that he can strike you dead or so that he can send you to the lake of fire and brimstone. Imagine that you're in a courtroom and the judge is sitting in his chair high above the courtroom, seated high above everybody else, and you're standing there and you're scared to death because you're guilty. You were driving 105 miles per hour in a 55 mile per hour zone. And you're scared to death of what's going to happen to you. Namely because the judge is your dad. And so you're standing there in front of the judge, who also happens to be your dad, and he sentences you. He says, the deputy tells me that you are going 50 miles per hour over the speed limit, and therefore you're going to pay a $500 fine or you're going to go to jail for a week. Well, you don't have $500. So you're destined to go to jail, right? And just before they handcuff you and take you back to jail, the judge, who is also your dad, gets off the bench and walks down over to you, pulls out his checkbook and writes a check for $500, hands it to the clerk and says, you're free to go. Does that make sense in what we're talking about this morning? You have a God that sits on his throne that meets out justice. But you also have a God that left his throne and came down to earth and dwelt among us so that we don't have to go to hell. And if you know all of this about God as your father and judge, if you know all about the holiness and the justice of God, and you know about the gospel, then pardon my frankness, but it's really just dumb to not accept the free gift of grace and live in the presence of a holy God. Why would you ever turn your back on that? That's just not common sense. That's just not good sense at all, right? And so if you're sitting here this morning and, and perhaps you've been contemplating your spiritual livelihood, let me tell you this. Don't make it hard for me to do your funeral, right? Make it easy for me by accepting the free gift of grace, being immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins, living a faithful life as a disciple of Jesus so that when you stand before the Lord one day, he will say, well done, thy good and faithful servant, and not depart from me, I never knew you. If we can help you this morning, if you're ready to make the most important decision you will ever make in your life, then come forward as we stand and as we sing. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me hath made known, nor 